last week, I believe we finished Ecclesiastes 8, and to sort of get you up to speed as we go into 9, the thrust of Ecclesiastes 8 was that the creation under the sun is set up so that it can't ever be completely figured out. He put eternity into man's heart so that we have a sense that there's more to life than just under the sun, but he set things up under the sun so you can never completely figure it out, so you're always, for lack of a better term, slightly off balance. This is now Sunday theology, which is good. I'm not saying it's wrong. The reason he put it there is so that you would never get comfortable here on the earth and you would always be looking for him. So he put in you this sense of eternity and that sense of eternity gives you a feeling or an understanding that this world is not all there is. Then you couple that with the fact that you can't completely figure out this world and that sets up a dynamic where you can become seeking spiritually and try and find him. Comment was there's a certain lot of people around here that seem to be comfortable with the world. And that's interesting. You should say that. I read a blog post. I don't remember where it was. Um, probably the Mormon Englishman that I read periodically. He's sort of a C.S. Lewis type. In fact, he chronicles C.S. Lewis and the Inklings and so forth. And his comment was, this is the first generation that has ever been truly free. Truly free in the sense that they are truly free to choose God or not. Because we have come to the point technologically, scientifically, and so forth, that if you choose not to go after God, you can live a very highly entertained life. Life is actually pretty easy. You have all the comforts that even rich people didn't have at the time of Solomon. So there's no more necessity to seek after God. You're not praying to God for rain. You're not praying to God for your barren sheep. You're not praying to God for all those things because you're not affected by all that stuff. You're insulated from it by the civilization we've put together. You know, in a severe drought, you may not get to water your lawn and your lawn turns brown. But that's about as bad as it ever gets. We're not dealing with famine. And so the comment he made was, what that does is it truly frees you so those who are seeking God truly want him. They're not seeking him for favors. They're seeking him because they want him. And this is sort of the first generation where lots of people have been in that circumstance. All right, so now we're in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. But all this I laid to heart. When I say all this, what we're talking about is what we just let in with. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are all in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. I have no idea what that means. I'll tell you right up front. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. To the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And so what we're talking about, obviously, is death. 
humanity is universally mortal. And I haven't said this in a while, but probably a good time to say it. The thing that happened when we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is we became mortal. So when Paul in Romans is talking about the fact that people were dying, but they weren't dying because they had committed the same sin that Adam committed. Adam ate from the forbidden fruit, and several thousand years later, people are dying, but they're dying for different stuff than what Adam did. But the point he makes is that Adam is the one who brought mortality to humanity. So by being children of Adam, we are all mortal. And what Solomon is saying here is he looks at all humanity, all the people he knows, good, bad, those who sacrifice, those who don't sacrifice, etc. And at the end of the day, they all go to the grave. And this is a continuation of chapter 8, where he has said that it isn't possible to figure this place out completely. Those who eat pork statistically live just as long as those who don't. Same with shrimp or anything like that. So the clean diet that God commands for his people has some other purpose that we do not completely understand. So it's simply one of those things that you do it because he said to. And you figure that he's got a reason for it. And you don't have to understand that reason. You just do what he says. So he's listed lots of categories of opposites, those who swear an oath, those who don't swear, etc. And the idea here is, of course, that we're all mortal and the grave awaits all of us. I'm in three and a half now. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. This is a continuation of a theme that starts clear back in Genesis. As God is getting ready to destroy the world with a flood, one of the things he says is that the heart of man was only evil continually. That, by the way, is the first mention of the heart in Scripture. So the very first mention of the heart in Scripture, God declares that it only evil continually. Jeremiah, who comes thousands of years after the flood, says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So the heart hasn't changed. And so Solomon here in Ecclesiastes is noting the same thing. Verse 4, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. A couple things about that. First off, the origin of the phrase, where there's life, there's hope. In other words, as long as you are living, there's hope. The other thing is, we've talked about this in the past, the Bible says very little about the afterlife. It says there is one, but it says very little about it. And so the standard phrase in the Old Testament when somebody dies is he is sleeping with the fathers or he has been gathered to his people. So the idea here that Solomon is saying, once you're dead, you know nothing, is not really a commentary on the afterlife per se. It's simply saying, as far as your influence on the world after you die, it's over. 
Once we die, that doesn't mean we cease to have interests in the world. If that were the case, there would be no reason to write a will. If it didn't matter to you what happened after you died, you wouldn't bother to write a will. Whenever you died, go what happened to it. But people do make wills. People do make arrangements for things to continue after their death. And one of the things that he says in here is that most men, when they die, are forgotten. In other words, they don't leave a legacy beyond a generation or two. I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head who my great-grandfather was. I don't know his name. I know my grandfather. I know his name on both sides. But I don't know any farther back than that. So unless you're a Julius Caesar or a Winston Churchill or somebody like that, once you've gone within a generation or two, you're forgotten. So what he's saying here is as long as you're alive, you have hope. But once you die, your memory very soon perishes. And furthermore, he doesn't know anything about what your state is. One of the examples in the Old Testament is where Saul goes and raises Samuel. And what is Samuel's first grumpy question? Why did you wake me up? So the idea there is he was asleep, which is to say not particularly conscious of what was going on. In Judaism, the greatest mitzvah is to do something for somebody who was dead. And the reason for that is, is there's no way he can repay you. And the idea is that the dead still have interests in this world that they are no longer able to affect. That's the origin of the Leverite marriage, where when a man dies without children, his brother is obligated to take his wife and the first child that they have together comes into the dead brother's inheritance. That's why Onan didn't want to do it for his brother and God killed him because he didn't want to have that first child get the inheritance of the firstborn. He wanted it for himself. I said that perhaps inartfully. Let me try again. Once you die, you don't write any new books. Once you die, you don't build any new houses. Once you die, you don't sire any more children. So in that sense, you are unable to influence the world. Your example of, gee, if you wrote a book and people read the book for years after you're influencing it, that's absolutely correct. That wasn't what I was talking about. The idea is, at some point, God says, time to come home and lie down, you're done. Beyond that point, if you haven't set something up that continues after you, there isn't anything. There are people who set things up so that they continue for a time afterwards. But at some point, the remembrance of you goes away. It's sort of like Matthew Henry. He wrote an extensive commentary on the Bible. You can buy it today, but it's very, very dated. The language is dated, the thoughts are dated, and so forth. So eventually, unless you're an Aristotle or somebody like that, you eventually nobody remembers. So what he's done up through chapter 8 and the first six verses of chapter 9 is one long riff on mortality 
and the incomprehensibility of the creation. In other words, it's set up so you can't know everything. And the fact that what happens after you hit the grave, nobody really knows. So he's cutting off, if you will, his commentary at the grave because he says, I don't know what happens next. We know something happens next, but we have no idea what it is. And once you've hit that point of mortality, you're done as far as we're concerned. So you want to see verse 7 in the light of chapters 8 and the beginning of 9. So verse 7, go, eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garment always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. One of the things that is a fairly common phrase is people are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. He's speaking specifically against that pathology. He's saying, we don't know what happens after the grave, but your life here is important. It's all that you have right now. And so as you go through that, do it with gusto. Be enthusiastic about what you're doing. Marry, have children. Find something to do with your hands. And what he says is that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. That's very much in line with the idea of sleeping with your fathers or being gathered to your ancestors. Yeah, there's a resurrection. Remember, we have in Job where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand before him in my flesh and I will see him, that's talking of resurrection. So the idea of resurrection is not unknown to Solomon. What he's saying is, whatever you're going to do, get it done before you die because we don't know what's going to happen next. And by the way, so this idea that there is uh, no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going, this is not a theological statement. Remember, one of the things that we've said in the past, which is worth repeating, is that there's three voices in Scripture. There's the voice of the prophet, there's the voice of the king, and there's the voice of the priest. Each one of them speaks of different things. This is the voice of the king. So what the king is doing here is he is speaking in earthly terms under the sun. If you want to talk about theology, you need to talk to the priest or the prophet. So this is not particularly a theological statement. It's just a practical statement that when you hit the grave, as far as we're concerned, you're done, bub. Don't be planning to do anything beyond that because as far as we know, you're not going to. Sort of the way you could read that. Verse 11, again, I saw that under the sun, notice again, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, we are talking about the created order. We are not talking about cosmology. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. This goes along with the line that everybody winds up in the grave. 
And as I am fond of saying, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but that's the way to bet. Because in most cases, that will be what happens. But what he's saying is that isn't always what happens. This is not a deterministic world. Everybody understand what deterministic is? You put your input here, you turn the crank, and you get the same sausage out no matter what. Here you put your input in, you turn the crank, and you may get sausage over here, or you may get asparagus over there. You just don't know. And that's what he's saying, that this place is not deterministic. Part of this whole riff is that you have righteous people who are poor, and you have wicked people who are rich, and that's why I say this is not a deterministic event. There isn't a formula, if you will, that guarantees a result. But there is a formula is not the right word. There is a set of instructions that maximizes the probability that you will have a good life, and that's called Torah. But it's not guaranteed. So 11 and a half. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And again, the idea here is death is not a friend. Death is not good. It is a result of the mortality that we purchased for ourselves. Verse 13, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. For I said that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. A couple of things there. The idea that wisdom delivers the city and that wisdom is something that it is possible will defeat might. But again, it's not guaranteed. And the other part of that is, even though by his wisdom he delivered that city, nobody remembers him. They may remember the event. Somebody saved the city, but nobody remembers him. And the idea that he is poor but wise goes back to this, there is no formula that you put your goat in and turn the crank and it works. Because... Here is a man who is wise and is able by his wisdom to save a city, yet he is poor. In other words, his wisdom has not gained him worldly wealth. You see the play going on there? Verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, I'm going to go down to chapter 10 because this is all of a thought. So 9.17 again, and then I'm just going to read through into chapter 10. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Give you a modern example. You are a very wise man. You're a professor. You have been called to come to some place and give a lecture on something, and you leave your laptop open, and kitty porn flashes up on your screen. Your career is over. doesn't matter how much good you've done, how smart you are, but that one screw-up 
will cause your career to be over. So the idea of a dead fly landing in the ointment ruins the whole batch of the ointment. You may have 10 gallons of ointment, but if you've got dead fly floating on the top of it, it's all got to be thrown out. That's what he's saying. And backing up to 917, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Notice a ruler is power. The wise is not necessarily power. So it's a play between earthly power or secular power and wisdom. And finally, the idea of a little folly outweighing wisdom and honor. The reason I thought of the computer example is because it happened several years ago. Some famous guy was getting ready to deliver a lecture, and his laptop was sitting there, and the laptop clicked off, and his screensaver showed up, and his screensaver was kiddie porn. It's over. Nobody's interested in what he's got to say anymore. He's gone. As I say, there was an example, I don't remember how long ago, but it was five or ten years ago that happened. And, of course, the standard defense is I've been hacked, and you may get away with that or you may not. I mean, it's, that's a crapshoot. But the whole point is you can ruin an entire life of good works and accomplishment by one stupid act. All right, now what we're going to do is we're going to go into a bunch of mashalim here, those two-line wisdom shots, and I'm just going to mostly scoot on through those because we've been through Proverbs and they're basically Proverbs. And then we will not have a Bible study two weeks from now, so we probably won't finish Ecclesiastes tonight, but I will plan on finishing it next time. So the point is here, the way the book is laid out, it starts off as a young man trying to figure things out and goes through his life, and when we get to 11 and 12, he's talking about the time of his death. And as we come later in the book, what he's doing is he is giving the benefit of the wisdom that he has gained over a lifetime. Early on, he tries all sorts of stuff and discovers that, well, that was dumb. Well, that didn't make any difference. So that was not worthwhile and so forth. But at this point, he is a mature man with death in view on the horizon. And so now what he's doing is giving wisdom of a mature man. And then in 11 and 12, he'll talk about the end of life. Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Notice right, left, and when he walks on the road is down the center. The wise man inclines to the right, the fool inclines to the left, and even when the fool is in the middle of the road, he's still a fool. Sort of like the old saying, which is not biblical, but it's very wise, better to be quiet and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And the word calmness there is healing underneath. Hebrew. So what is that saying? Comment was time heals all wounds and that is not quite right, but it's close. What he's saying here is the anger of a ruler. In wisdom literature, you don't want the king mad at you. And in fact, in real life, you don't want the king mad at you. But if the king does become angry with you, do not quit. Stay in your place, continue to do your job, and work on healing the relationship. When the king 
gets chapped with you, if you run away, there's never a possibility of healing the relationship. Only by staying there and working through it, assuming that he isn't so mad that he's going to kill you, there's a degree there. If he's trying to kill you, this is maybe not good advice, but short of him trying to kill you, if you run, then you'll never heal that relationship. So you have to stay there and work on it. Verse 5, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Notice what caused this, the folly of a ruler. The ruler has done something foolish, and that's resulted in the upset of the social order. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. That goes to your time wounds all heals that you said earlier. If you set something up to trap somebody else, you are very likely to be caught in your own snare. And by the way, the one who breaks through a wall is a thief. He's trying to break into a corral or break into a house for nefarious purposes. And what you have is when he does that, there'll be a snake in the rocks of the wall, and that'll bite him and it'll kill him. The digging of a pit or the breaking of a wall is not the problem. It's the motivation. And clearly the motivation here is digging a pit, hoping somebody else will fall into it, or breaking through a wall for a nefarious purpose. It is not the construction trade, digging or breaking down walls. We're not talking about that. He who quarries stones will be hurt by them. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. And what that's saying is life is dangerous. Slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. This is proceeding from an error of a ruler, not from the anger of the ruler. You have a foolish king. And we'll talk about a foolish king later on. The idea is that the ruler has done something stupid. So he who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. The whole point is... Living is dangerous, and if you're going to build stone houses and you're going to fell trees, you're occasionally going to be injured in that process. I don't know whether you've seen some of those old black and white films of lumberjacks in the Pacific Northwest where they climb up on top of a tree and they top the tree, and the reason they do it is so when the tree falls, it doesn't shatter. So they take the top off, and as the top falls, that tree whips and ricochets. And it was not uncommon for the lumberjack to be thrown off of the tree, which resulted in a dead lumberjack. The point is, all of that kind of stuff, heavy things, big stuff, moving heavy loads, all that's inherently dangerous. Verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Now, a couple of things going on there. Obviously, if you have a dull knife, you're going to have to work harder. And I think everybody here knows that a dull knife is inherently more dangerous than a sharp one because you wind up pushing hard and things slip and so forth, and that's how you get hurt. But then he does a switch here. But wisdom helps one to succeed. So the idea of sharpening a knife or sharpening your iron is using wisdom, using the right tool, maintaining the right tool, using the right tool in a proper way is akin to wisdom. So wisdom in that sense becomes then the sharp iron 
If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. And the idea here is someone who is able to charm snakes has a skill. He's able to do something that most people can't do, which is charm a snake. However, if the snake bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage to being a snake charmer. In other words, you have all this knowledge of how to be a snake charmer, but you're walking along and a snake nails you from the bushes and you never saw him. The fact that you're a snake charmer doesn't protect you. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. You have a fool that starts off just being stupid, and he gets worse and worse and worse until he's finally evil and mad. Verse 14, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. One of the things that a fool does is runs his mouth. That's one of the prime ways you can tell he's a fool. And he runs his mouth even though he is not wise, and even a wise man doesn't know what's to be. So he runs his mouth, and he runs it in a way that it's obvious that he's a fool because he is saying things that even a wise man couldn't know, and he doesn't know either. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. What I am assuming that means, and this is a guess on my part, is a fool works, but his work is ineffective. It doesn't get him to the goal that he's looking for, the way to the city. He expends a great deal of effort working, but it doesn't get him anywhere near a useful goal. 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. The idea here is a child, of course, is a fool. Goes with being a child. I mean, we've all been through Proverbs. Young people are foolish just because they don't have either much experience or much sense. So if you have a king who is a child, then the princes who should be guiding this young kid until he matures have the opportunity instead to run free and loot the place. Every day is a party because there's no governing authority. Because the king is a child and he doesn't know enough to rein in his nobles. Combination there, the king is young and his nobles are corrupt. That's a bad combination. So woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. So the princes feast in the morning is not necessarily a result of the king being a child. It is a combination of a young king and corrupt princes. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. It doesn't say anything about the age of the king here. It simply says that the princes that are administering the kingdom feast at the proper time. In other words, there's nothing wrong with a prince feasting. If you're a high government official, you expect to be compensated. That's the problem with that. And they do so to keep themselves strong and sharp, not to dissipate themselves in drunkenness. 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. 
So nobody's taking care of maintenance. And by the way, this goes back to our princes feasting in the morning. They are not taking care of the business of government. They are instead enjoying themselves corruptly. And then through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. We've talked about that before. Remember, two proverbs having to do with money. Proverb number one is money is a strong fortress. And proverb number two is those who seek refuge in money are fools. Those are both true depending on the circumstances. I've explained this. If you've got enough money in the bank, a flat tire is just an inconvenience. If you don't have enough money in the bank, a flat tire is a disaster. On the other hand, if you've got the Babylonian Empire coming down to take the place over, all the money in the world isn't going to do you a bit of good. It's simply a matter of circumstances. Same thing here. Verse 20. Even in thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. What we're talking about here is if you curse the king in your thoughts, at some point you are going to slip and it's going to come out of your mouth at the wrong time. That's what's being said there. This isn't talking about lies. It's you've got an attitude toward the king. And you think the king is a rascal. Not that there are spies in your bedroom or something. It's that if that's your attitude toward the king, at some point it is going to come out of your mouth, and it's going to come out of your mouth at a time when you really don't want anybody to hear what you just said. So we have come to the end of the chapter. We have two more chapters to go. And in the remaining two chapters, Solomon is going to wind up his life. <laughs>